<clears throat> Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 25 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, moderator of today's forum. We invite those of you who are listening on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. All forums are free and open to the public, and information on upcoming programs with Jacob Needleman on March 23rd and David Halberstam on April 27th can be found online at eWestminster.org. It's my pleasure to introduce the first speaker in our spring series on the meaning of America. Founder and president of the Children's Defense Fund, Marion Wright Edelman is recognized as one of the most powerful voices for children and families in our nation today. Born in Bennettsville, South Carolina, Ms. Edelman is the last of five children of the Reverend Art Jerome and Maggie Bowen Wright. In her birth home in Bennettsville is now a Children's Defense Fund office. She was educated at Spelman College and Yale University Law School during the explosive years of the Civil Rights Movement. As a young lawyer, she worked with the NAACP's Legal Defense and Education Fund before moving to Mississippi, where she was the first African-American woman admitted to the Mississippi Bar. In 1968, she married Peter Edelman, a civil rights attorney and legislative aide to Robert Kennedy. They joined Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Poor, Poor People's Campaign and moved to Washington, D.C., where she served as counsel to the campaign. She created the Washington Research Group, a public interest advocacy group, and in 1973, founded the Children's Defense Fund. For over 30 years, the Children's Defense Fund has worked to secure funding for Head Start and other programs that provide food, healthcare, and educational opportunities for children and families throughout the United States. In her book, Lanterns, Ms. Edelman remembers the individuals who inspired her in her younger years, and she writes, they never talked to me about how to make a living or how to get a job. They stressed how to make a life, and how to find a purpose worth living for, and to leave the world better than I found it. Profoundly influenced by the mentors in her life, she has, through her life and work, become a mentor to thousands of others. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Marion Wright Edelman. Thank you. Thank you very much. I am delighted to be back at this wonderful townhouse forum. The meaning of America, if it means anything, is about justice for me. And the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 59, said justice is turned back and righteousness stands at a distance for truth stumbles. Him that there was no justice. And what I'm here today is to talk about the time is right now for us to build a just America for every child. I'm often asked what's wrong with our children. Children having children, children killing children, children killing others, children killing themselves. Children roaming streets alone or in gangs all day and night. Children floating through life like driftwood on a beach. Children addicted to tobacco and alcohol and heroin and cocaine and crack and pot. 
drinking and drugging themselves to death to escape reality, children running away from home or being thrown away by parents, children being locked up in jails with adult criminal mentors or all alone, children dying of AIDS, children bubbling with rage and crushed by depression. What's wrong with our children? Well, I think adults are what's wrong with our children. Parents letting children raise themselves or be raised by television, children being shaped by peers and gangs instead of by parents, grandparents and kin and people of faith, children roaming the streets because there's nobody at home or paying enough attention, children going to drug houses and that are always open instead of to schoolhouses and church houses that are too often closed. We need to open up these doors and let our children find positive alternatives to the streets. Children seeing adults be violent to each other and to them and adults tolerating a culture of violence and then we say, why children violent? What's wrong with our children? We're what's wrong with our children. Adults telling children one thing and doing another. Adults making promises we don't keep and preaching what we don't practice. Adults telling children to control themselves while slapping and spanking, telling children to be honest while lying and cheating. Adults telling children not to be violent while marketing and glorifying violence. Let's turn off these violent TV shows and let's monitor what our children say on the internet. Let's begin to read and reestablish the rituals of family life, but we need to deal with the culture of violence in our country. Adults telling children to be healthy while selling them junk food and addicting them to smoke and drink and careless sex. We are what's wrong with our children. And I hope we'll ask God to help us to repent and to act, to see that every child has hope and fair opportunity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great Protestant theologian who died opposing Hitler's Holocaust, said that the test of the morality of a society is how it treats its children. The United States of America flunks Bonhoeffer's test every hour of every day. A child is abused or neglected every 35 seconds in our nation, in Minnesota, every 53 minutes. A child is born into poverty and a nation blessed to be the richest on earth every 36 seconds. We have 13 million poor children, the majority of their families work every day trying to make ends meet, can't get wages that are decent to escape poverty in Minnesota. A child is born into poverty every hour. We lead the world in health technology, but we let a child be born without health insurance every 42 seconds in our nation, and 90% of their parents work. Their employers don't provide health coverage. It's time for us to have the decency to say that every child is going to have health care in our great nation, and let's do it. There are 84,000 uninsured children in Minnesota. We have 9 million in our nation, and our leaders have just voted to dismantle the child health protections under Medicaid, are sitting there proposing new cuts in children's health insurance. Let's stop it, and let's say every child health care. A child is killed by firearms almost every three hours. That's almost eight a day. We've made progress. We've come from 15 a day when we first started highlighting gun violence against children. But we've got to do better. A child that is killed by gunfire in Minnesota every week. We worry and speak out and have anti-war movements, Vietnam and Iraq. We have lost almost 100,000 children to gunfire since 1979. We began to, make, to, to, to keep gun figures by age. 
That's twice as many as the American battle casualties in Vietnam, but where is our anti-war movement and protection movement for our children? It's time to stop the killing of children from firearms in America. Now, I want to be clear that these statistics are not just somebody else's children. They reflect children in every race, place, and family type, and minority children fare worse. Obviously, we know what happens. The most dangerous intersection for a child to be born into in America today is that intersection between poverty and race. A black boy today who is four years old has a one in three chance of ending up in prison in his lifetime. A black girl, a one in one 18 chance. We've got 580,000 black males sitting in state or federal prison, while fewer than 40,000 black males get a bachelor's degree. Latino young people, Native American young people, and many poor white young people are also funneled into a pipeline because we're not educating, we're not giving them hopes, we're not giving them skills to function in our society. Toughest sentencing guidelines, failing schools, zero tolerance school discipline policies, the criminalization of children at younger and younger ages. I mean, I think we adults have lost our sense and we're handcuffing and arresting a five-year-old girl in St. Petersburg, Florida, or nine-year-old children um, for offenses that used to be handled on the school grounds. We need to stop the lowering of the ages and sending children into a system of hopelessness. And we need to make sure that they're stressed and often poor and teen families, some of whom are dysfunctional, get the parenting and other supports that they need. We hear constantly about the lack of community health and mental health supports and parenting supports as a way of keeping children into a track for a healthy future. We need to make sure our children have positive alternatives to the streets and positive mentors and role models. But too many of our children are born into a nation with an unlevel playing field from birth and are sucked into or cradled a prison pipeline that we must dismantle if the clock of racial and social progress is not to turn backwards. Schools we need to focus on. A majority of children of all races are not reading at grade level in fourth grade, and it gets worse as they get older. If children can't read or write, they don't have a future in this great nation, and the fact that a majority of white children and 80%, more than 80% of black and Latino children are not reading and doing math at grade level and fourth grade, I'll tell you, folk, is a national disaster. If we're gonna prepare children for the future, we need to educate them. And if we can talk about spending billions of dollars on a Star Wars missile defense system that's flunked every test, we need to be redirecting that money to help children pass their tests here in our schools. If we can create the kind of technology, um, break the DNA code, why can't we figure out and make the political commitment to teach every child to read and compute and to get on their feet? And we need to demand that, that we can educate every child, but that's about political will. We do not have a money problem in America. We have a profound values and priorities problem, and we have to change those values and priorities. The only thing our nation will guarantee every child is a juvenile detention or a prison cell after he or she gets into trouble.
States, Minnesota is spending 4.8 times more per prisoner than per public school pupil. States on average spend three times more per prisoner than per pupil. I can't think of a dumber investment policy. We should be guaranteeing every child health care, quality early childhood education, or good education, after school programs and summer programs. It saves money, it saves lives, it prepares our children to build a strong American future. These facts are not acts of God. They are our moral, political, and economic choices. We can and must change them. And we have got to speak up to make sure that happens because our nation's moral compass needs resetting. We are teetering on the brink of destroying at home and around the world the very values of freedom and justice that I believe makes America, America. A Pandora's box of greed, terrorism, tortures, moral torture, moral corruption, intolerance, and disregard for the rule of law and justice has been open. You and I must close it, lest the world we pass on to our children and grandchildren be indelibly sullied. And I think that leaders of every faith and citizens of every place need to stand up and declare that we are going to see that we're going to make sure that the American dream applies to every one of our children. I talk a lot and admire an illiterate but brilliant slave woman named Sojourner Truth, who just had a point, she just got to the point and spoke the truth very clearly. And she one day heard a speaker commenting about the United States Constitution by, and she answered him by alluding to a boll weevil epidemic that had destroyed many crops in the Midwest that year. She says, I goes out in the fields and talks to God in the woods. This morning I was walking out and I got over the fence. I saw the wheat holding up its head looking very big. I goes up and I takes hold of it. You believe it, there was no wheat there. I said, God, what's the matter with this wheat? And he says to me, Sojourner, there's a little weasel in it. She said, now I hear talking about the Constitution and the rights of man, and I take hold of this Constitution. It looks mighty big, and I feel for my rights, but there ain't any there. Then I says, God, what ails this Constitution? And he says, Sojourner, there's a little weasel in it. <laughs> my bottom line message today, folks, is wake up. There are some big weasels eating away at America's Constitution, at our professed values of freedom and justice, at the integrity of the prophets and of the Gospels and of all great faiths. And unless we name them, understand them, challenge them, and pluck them out, I believe they will destroy our nation's soul, our values, our children's future, and squander the goodwill of billions of people in our globalizing world. I want to name a few of these big weasels, and then we're going to talk about what we can do quickly, and then we'll open up for questions. The first weasel that is really very busy in Washington and in our state legislatures today is the powerful special interest weasel that demands and receives first call on government resources at the expense of the poor, of children, and of the powerless. Now, I don't begrudge anybody their first million or billion or even their fifth or tenth of either. If they are earned on a fair playing field and after our children's basic survival needs, health care, food, shelter, education, safety are met, 
But something is out of whack in our nation when just three of our richest Americans have greater wealth than 50 million citizens living in 25 states. They didn't need a tax cut in 2001. They did not need another tax cut in 2003, still another in 2004, and the House voted, with many of your Minnesota senators voted for it in 2005, and would you believe it, they're trying to make tax cuts up to $70 billion, many of them permanent, that have already been enacted at a time when child poverty is increasing in a post-Katrina era where children are living in misery and don't have health care, when we've got the largest budget deficit in our history and we're in the middle of two costly wars. We need to say so clearly to our leaders, you need to take the responsibility for our nation's values and say no more tax cuts for millionaires and billionaires and no more budget cuts for children and the poor. It is not a time for that. <laughs> Justice is dying in America when the rich get more and more tax cuts and poor children and families get more and more budget cuts. What will you do about that? The deception weasel. We hear wonderful words and wonderful rhetoric. Our trademarked mission at the Children's Defense Fund, and we mean it, is leave no child behind. It's been borrowed. And we don't mind people borrowing our words if they actually do it, but we can't say leave no child behind and then leave millions of children behind without good education cutting children's budgets over and over again. You know, we can't say mission accomplished on anything if we're not actually trying to provide the resources we need to accomplish those missions. And so we really do need to challenge leaders when they say one thing and do another, because justice dies when pervasive deception by any political leader of any political party goes unchallenged and citizens and our children cannot trust the words of our leaders, we must hold them accountable for what they say and look behind it for the truth. The Robin Hood in reverse weasel. All great faiths call for protection of the poor and vulnerable. Dr. King was speaking in 1968. He called for a poor people's campaign. At that time, there were 25 million poor children Today, when our nation's economy is over twice as wealthy as then, we have 37 million poor people, though we did make great progress, and many millions of people escape poverty, and the nature of the poor today is different. Most of them are working poor, trying to play by the rules, can't earn wages, and our Congress that could find time for all these tax cuts have not been able to find time over the last years to vote for an increase in the minimum wage. It's been eight years since the minimum wage has been increased. We need to say we've got our priorities wrong. Majority of the poor are white, and three out of four of them, as I've already indicated, live in working households, but we need to begin to call in this rich nation now. Because Katrina, I think, ripped away the veil of hypocrisy and denial. We need to call for an end to child poverty. No other wealthy, industrialized nation lets its children be the poorest age group. And I can't imagine how we tolerate children in extreme poverty continuing to grow and watching our leaders respond by cutting rather than investing and by giving tax cuts that create more debt and which drain away the resources children need to be prepared to lead us tomorrow. We must challenge the Robin Hood and reverse weasel. We need to deal with the insatiable military weasel. We all want to be secure from terrorists within and without. 
But Dr. King warned against continuing to invest more and more in weapons of death when millions of people in America and around the world need weapons of life, peace and food and health care, and clean water and economic development and poverty eradication. And we need to monitor the continuing increases in our defense budget, look at it and see whether it's really making us more secure. And much of the cost for our costly wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and Afghanistan are off budget. But we need to see whether we can get better balance between what we're investing in peace and what we're investing in war. And as many people constantly continue to point out that poverty is probably the greatest weapon of mass destruction that we face, and we need to address that problem right now with a sense of urgency. <laughs> Two other, several other weasels, and then we'll go to what we can do, the false patriotism weasel. All of us love our country very deeply, I do. I love it so much I want it to be just. I wanted to honor its professed ideals of freedom and fair play and to conserve our natural and human resources for future generations. I, like Albert Camus, the great writer in France, says I don't want just any greatness for my country, particularly a greatness born of blood and falsehood. I want to keep it alive by keeping justice alive. And we should not be intimidated by anybody who, when we ask questions about the truth or non-truth of policies, don't be afraid of being called unpatriotic. You just stand up for what we think America stands for. And if America doesn't stand for justice, and if America doesn't stand for its children, it doesn't stand for much. So let's not be intimidated by calls that we're unpatriotic. The I have the only right way, truth, and word from God, weasel. In our wondrously diverse world and in our nation, which by 2054 will have no racial majority, any attempt to impose a single ideology or religion on all humankind and nations is folly. I think that we must stand up for freedom and justice and for everybody's belief being respected and not and against those who attempt to impose their belief on others. The charity can substitute for justice, weasel. Now with all of my heart, I believe in service and charity. That's our faith mandate as Christians or as people who come out of a Judeo tradition or out of a Muslim tradition, all great faiths call for service and caring for the vulnerable. But all the charity in the world and all the service in the world can't make up for unequal funding of our school systems, for the lack of good jobs that are being exported abroad, for the lack of housing for all the homeless, for the medical care and the mental health care that we're denying to hundreds of thousands of Katrina victims. Um, we need just government policies. Rebecca Blank, an economist at Wisconsin, writes that if we just eliminated the welfare program for poor mothers and children and the supplemental security income programs and food stamps, the cost of replacing just those three things would require each of the 258,000 religious congregations in America to raise an additional $300,000 a year in all future years. This is not going to happen. And we've got to make sure that if we are serious, as we encourage private support, and as we encourage more faith support, that we also speak a voice for just use of our public resources. So charity is not a substitute for justice. The prophets and the gospels in America's creed require justice. The Declaration of Independence doesn't say liberty and charity for all, it says liberty and justice for all. And for those of us in this audience who say we are Christians, Jesus was about justice. 
he spoke for justice and we must speak for justice because we believe, I believe, that justice and freedom would die if our government policies subsidize welfare for the rich, corporations and farmers, and deny it for poor working families and for children who did not choose their parents. I don't think the charity undermining justice is where we need to go as a nation. The last thing is to take it all now and leave it for our children to pay off. We really don't need to keep running up more and more debt for our children and grandchildren. And seeing this happen, we must say no, we must stop these new tax cuts. And I hope that you will. What can we do? Just very briefly, I think it is so important for us to face the reality. Katrina really did rip away the veil of denial, and I hope we will not let that story die. After 9-11, we had disaster relief Medicaid up and running, cutting through the categorical requirements, just getting health care to people. These Katrina people are scattered all over our nation, and they are often being denied basic health and mental health supports. And the bureaucracy is still there. That's why we've got to insist on health care for every child. A very moving statement by Dr. Bruce Perry, who is a senior fellow at the Child Trauma Academy in Houston, said that the real crisis from Katrina is coming. It is more relentless and powerful than the floodwaters in New Orleans, more destructive than the 150-mile-an-hour winds of Katrina is going to destroy a part of our country that is much more valuable than all of the buildings, pipelines, casinos, bridges, and roads, and all of the Gulf Coast. Over our lifetime, this crisis will cost our society billions upon billions of dollars, and the echoes of the coming crisis will haunt the next generations. He says the future of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast does not depend on structures. Our future depends on our children. And if we don't provide the safe, nurturing, predictable, and enriched experiences these children need, and if we do not arm our caregivers, educators, and mental health providers with the tools they need to understand, engage, and educate these traumatized children, all of these new buildings will be filled with struggling children growing into adulthood, expressing only a fraction of their true potential. We must focus our attention and our political leaders' attention on the children of Katrina. And we are going to, because it's those children are suffering, they're being put out of hotels now, back into shelters, many of them, in trailer camps without counseling, decent schools, after schools, without the supports that they need, out disconnected from community, unable to go back home, unable to find permanent houses. We must not let this story die. We must use this as a way of saying this great country can take care of all of its citizens and of, our great, of all of our children. And let's treat the citizens of Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama and Texas who were affected by this disaster in a way that is as fair as we did in the aftermath of 9-11. But let's take this as an opportunity for those children and families from those poor states to have a better life after Katrina than they had before Katrina. And so let's don't let the story die. Let's speak up for Katrina's children. Dr. King, in his last sermon at the Washington Cathedral, talked about, gave, talked about the parable, parable of Dives and Lazarus. And he said there's nothing in that parable that said Dives went to hell because he was rich. Dives went to hell because he passed by Lazarus every day and he never really saw him. He went to hell because he allowed his brother to become invisible. And just as Dives didn't realize his wealth was his opportunity, Dr. King warned that America could make the same mistake. And he called for a poor people's campaign, but let's do not not see 
the poor in our midst, the homeless in our midst, the hungry in our midst, the traumatized in our midst, the children who are on their way to prison, let's see them. Let's stand up for them. Let's get out of our egos and our organizations and our personal things and let's begin to speak up and build a movement for our children and for justice for our children. I want you to please hold your leaders accountable for how they vote and leaders who vote against children and for those who don't need it must be held accountable by you. We issue annually a voting record on how well members of Congress vote for children. There are some people here in Minnesota you ought to think. We just issued the voting record last, last couple of weeks. Look at it on our website, www.childrensdefensefund.org. Thank Senator Mark Dayton for his 100%. Thank Representative Betty McCollum for her 100%. Thank Representative Sabo for his 100%. We need to work and help Senator Coleman, who had 33%, do better and pass his test for children. We need to help. I hope you will help Representative Ramstad, who had 33%, do better. And he actually did better on the vote on the tax cut after voting for those tax cuts for the rich repeatedly. His vote was one of 13 Republicans that turned around. So thank him for that and tell him to continue to vote against tax cuts and against budget cuts for the poor. We need to work on helping um, Representative Mark Kennedy, who had 11% on our scorecard, help him pass his test. And let's really work on Representative John Klein, who scored zero. We need to be clear about who is voting for children and not voting for children, but the message is no more tax cuts for the rich and no more budget cuts for the poor and health care for every child. That is your voice in this country, and I hope you will use it. We can and must change priorities and values in our great nation. We can stop the move backwards. We must stop that move backwards. And I'm going to give Sojourner the last word again. Because we all want to be big dogs, and we all feel helpless. I know how helpless I feel every day with watching these terrible repeated budget cuts and these terrible repeated tax cuts, which are going to in, you know, in, in prison our nation and redefine who we are as a people. But then I remember Sojourner when she was one day speaking out against slavery and against second-class treatment of women, which were both viewed as hopeless causes, she got heckled by a man who stood up and said, old slave woman, I don't care anymore about your anti-slavery talk than for an old flea bite. And she snapped back at him and said, that's all right, Lord willing, I'm going to keep you scratching. <laughs> we don't all have to be big dogs and make big differences, but you can keep our leaders scratching with your votes, with your voices, showing up in town halls, being informed and saying, let's get health care for every child. Let's stop tax cuts. So I hope you'll all become fleas for justice for children. Even the biggest dog can be made uncomfortable if there are enough fleas that bite persistently. So be a flea for children. Thank you. Thank you, Marion Wright Edelman. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis, where we have just had a standing ovation for Ms. Edelman. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Church and moderator of today's forum. Our guest today is Marion Wright Edelman. While the ushers collect questions from the audience at Westminster, I would like to thank the Baker Foundation sponsor of today's forum, 
and all the organizations and individuals who support our mission to promote public discourse on the critical issues of the day. I'd also like to welcome to our sanctuary audience 55 students from the Perpich Center for the Arts here in Minneapolis. We are honored to have you among us and welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Good to have you here. We invite you to join the Westminster Town Hall Forum for our spring series, which we began today, on the meaning of America, with philosopher Jacob Needleman on March 23rd and journalist David Halberstam on April 27th. Further information online at eWestminster.org. And now, Ms. Edelman, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. You've been at this a long time, since Dr. King and before Dr. King. How do you sense the prevailing winds are blowing in this country? Are they hopeful? Are they leading you toward despair? We don't have any time for despair, but there are bad winds blowing in this country and we have to see them and we have to build hope out of that growing despair among so many Americans. You know, in 1960 or 1956, when Ms. 55, 56, when Ms. Parks and the civil rights movement started, just got tired of not wanting to see the segregated communities go on. It seemed pretty hopeless and there were winds of despair. It's very dangerous. I think this is probably the most dangerous time I have seen, but the answer is not despair. It is to get up and to really begin to speak up, to begin new public theater, to hold our leaders accountable, and to say it simply is not right. The civil rights movement started because people just got tired of injustice, and individuals began to take a stand, and there were few of them, and they were poor, and they often didn't have many tools. And I went back to Selma and to Marion, Alabama a couple of weeks ago, past where Miss Mrs. King came from and Jean Young came from, and these were poor rural areas. I went back to Selma and went back to Jackson, Mississippi and to Birmingham and remembered how it was poor children who stood up. They didn't have great power, but they just stood up and they broke the back of Bull Connor in Alabama and got the Voting Rights Act of 65. And so the winds in this country are very negative at the moment, but what is missing is you and your voice and your vote and you're saying this is not the America that we want to leave for our children, so we can change this. You referred to the death of Mrs. King last week. We mourned her loss. Uh, can you share some reflections on your memories of, of her leadership and her life? Well, you know, she was, Coretta Scott King was wonderful. She was a partner with Dr. King um, throughout her whole life, but she also had her own voice. And she kept his legacy alive. She got the holiday, but she continued to speak for justice and for human rights and for women. And so the celebration of her life last week is important. And in many ways, it's the passing of an era. And we've just finished celebrating Dr. King's birthday. And as I indicate all the time in audiences, we all love to celebrate Dr. King. We don't want to follow him. It is time to follow him. And it's time for us all to stop waiting for Dr. King or Coretta to come back. They're not. They're gone. We're it. Let's finish the movement to put the social and economic underpinnings beneath them. question from one of the high school students in attendance. As one of the nation's strongest voices for the rights of children and families, have you always had the drive and confidence to stand up for your fellow human beings? Where might I find some? You should find it here today. I grew up with adults who always said you live your faith and, and, and they were who we thought they were and it was segregated, it was a poor community, the outside world told us black children we weren't worth much. 
but our parents said it wasn't so, our churches said it wasn't so, and they did what they could to help other folk, and they never said you had to succeed, but that your faith says you go out and you try and you give up, you never give up. Um, and I went to college, and then I happened to be very lucky to have Dr. King and Dr. Mays and great folk come through compulsory chapel, which I oppose. But I remember chapel now better than I remember most of my classes. <laughs> but the message was that service is the rent you live, you, you each of us pays for living, and that those of us with the privilege of education and resources have an obligation to give back to those. And so I always had adults who always said, you can change things, and, be, and, and they empowered us, and there was never a moment from the time that I was born that I didn't hate segregation and understood that it wasn't me. And so we adults, we're building a movement and with young people. We're training thousands of young people down at Alex Haley Farms. Thousands of young people have been out running freedom schools. We've got some here in Minnesota and in Minneapolis and St. Paul keeping young children off the streets in the summer. And we need to be engaging in civic education and doing organizing training, but we need to give young children opportunities for engaging themselves and let them know the stories of how children help change America and to take them out to see the homeless shelters. Last night, we celebrated four young people, as we do all across the country, who are beating the odds. Our children need to hear these stories, but we also need to understand we can change the odds and we need to affirm in our nation that every child is sacred and every child can make a difference and that's the title of my new book it's I can make a difference and we're training children from 5 to 15 to 16 to know that I can make a difference I must make a difference in my home and family and so I hope that young people will be encouraged and that we will have enough adults who will be out there working with children standing for children standing with children taking them to the voting booth letting them understand that they have a voice now and maybe we need to have children's marches again like we had in Birmingham to let them be clear that we're not going accept continuing injustice against our children. So let's work together as young children and find ways of making sure that they know that they can make a difference because we adults are providing the example. But they will do what we do, not what we tell them to do. Another question from one of the students from Purpich School. Uh, would you speak about what Jonathan Kozel refers to as the apartheid in our K-12 system and the impact that it's having on students in public schools? Well, we do have um, legal apartheid. We, we are our schools are resegregating. They're either separate and equal, um, and they're not desegregated. And we're seeing a resegregation in our country, and we're seeing disparate educational treatment between children in poor areas who should be getting the most because they need the most, but they're getting the least. They have the least experienced teachers. They have the least well-equipped laboratories and libraries. And so Jonathan Kozel's voice is not a popular one, but it is a true one. And we need to talk about how we make sure that we close the achievement gap, that we close the financing gap between rich and poor districts, that we begin to really equalize resources. And I want to encourage people to go into teaching. I'm so pleased that one of my sons is a principal in an inner city school in DC. But the most important kind of, of career we can choose is to talk about going in to teach our children. And children need people who believe in them, who have high expectations for them. You can have the fanciest classrooms in the world, but if teachers don't believe in them, children pick it up. So we've got to talk about how we do face the fact that we have continued apartheid schooling, that we're turning back to where we were pre-Brown, and we've got to address that, and we've got to address the unequal educational opportunities that are persisting and growing 
between rich and poor in this country. It's one of the most urgent issues. It's one of those issues that is contributing to the cradle to prison pipeline. And so we need a real public conversation and we need to challenge leaders who pass No Child Left Behind acts and then underfund them by tens of billions of dollars. Children are more than their test. They need to be prepared with good teachers, quality education in those schools so that our children can live and learn. But it's a major problem and I appreciate Jonathan Kozel's witness about it. Question about uh, quality education for all. Given that we do need education for all, how do we address the matter of vouchers? Some poor parents seem to support them. Well, vouchers, um, for vouchers within public schools, but vouchers are a 5% solution or a 2% solution. That's not a solution for all the children in public schools. And, and, and so that I'm opposed to private vouchers because I grew up in an era in Mississippi when there was freedom of choice, so-called, but there was no choice. Um, and we've got to talk about making sure that when there is true choice in public context, um, that um, you know the quality of the education that they get is good. Um, we still have private schools from Mississippi in 1954. In fact, we still have a dual school system in the South, which is still kind of private school systems that are segregated and all white, and public school systems that are all black. Um, and I just think that we've got to talk about how we confront a good public education for all of our children and not let vouchers become a stalking home for undermining public education in our country. But we also have to address the quality of public education. We've got to make sure the schools are about children, not just about teachers, not just about custodians, not just about wages. We have got to make sure that our teachers are valued. We've also got to make sure that our children are learning. And so with the focus on quality, there are very real problems in many of our public schools and we have to address it. But it's not vouchers are not the answer. Here's a question from Veronica, who's 10 years old. Who is your favorite president? I haven't had one for a long time. Why don't I just, why don't I just pick Abraham Lincoln? Why don't I, you know, and I, and I think that it's really very important that we begin to, and you should think about running for president. Our president is yet to come. Um, but I think that we, but, but, but we need to have a president who really speaks and acts for all the people, who brings us together as Americans, who really does do what he, he or she she says, um, and I think that we just, again, need to, we, people make good presidents. And so our leaders are followers, and they do what they think we as citizens want. And so I'll hang on with Lincoln for a while until we can now get another president who comes into office who speaks to end poverty, who speaks for health care for everybody. But that will not happen unless we create the kind of presidents and political leaders that we want and that reflect the values that we want. Um, and that's, again, up to us to build that citizens' movement because we get the politicians that we deserve and that we demand. Question about undocumented workers. Actually, a question about whether you run for president. And no, the more important job at the moment is to create a movement to hold people in political office accountable, and that's what my goal is. I think it takes 40 years um, to build movements. We've been at it for about 37, and it's time for us now to be going towards Canaan land. And, we're going to get no, the outside constituency, the outside voices of women and people of faith and children and minority group leaders is what we've got to have if we've got to have a decent political system so that I think that my job and your job is more important than being president. Um, I think we've got to build the outside movement to make good presidents. How do you feel about giving equal rights for undocumented immigrants, working or non-working adults and their children? 
Well, it's a complicated set of questions, and I know a very touchy set of questions. And we are a nation, with the exception of our Native Americans, who were here before we were. Um, and some of us came as immigrants, not because we wanted to come. Um, but we're a nation of legal, of, we're a nation of immigrants. And so we obviously need to make sure that we're providing equal opportunity to legal immigrants in our midst. We have a very hypocritical policy um, and contradictory policy about illegal immigrants. On one hand, we say, do not come into our country illegal. On the other hand, we're saying, come in every legal immigrant we can so that we can export you and pay lower wages. And so we need to get our policies and our values straight about illegal immigration. And so not to... So I, you know, I, I understand the distinction between illegal and legal, but I also understand the, what, what is going on here under the cover in terms of exploitation of workers, and I'm against exploitation just as I am against illegality. And let me just say lastly, the children of undocumented folks, some of whom are born in our country, children did not choose their parents. And I don't think it's in anybody's interest to deny children basic health care and education if they're in this nation. And so children should be taken care of because they don't have any choice. You referred earlier to a, a, one of our legislators who had changed his vote on the, uh, the tax bill. Uh, that vote was changed after a meeting with his pastor and with uh, the leader of the Joint Religious Legislative Coalition here in Minnesota. How can we help progressive religious voices be heard in our current political climate and culture? Well, they just mostly need to do exactly what they did. I'll tell you, we, not enough people progressive pastors or congregations are meeting with their members of Congress. We have to take responsibility for that. It's everybody needs to sit down with their representative, and I don't care whether they're Republican or Democratic or conservative, liberal, and let me just tell you, what's going on now in our nation is not about conservatism, it's radical extremism. I think we're trying to conserve values of equality and freedom, but every pastor needs to be sitting down and every congregation needs to be having interaction about what is happening to our children and to our poor and the values that are reflected in just sitting down and having those meetings, going to those, tail, those, those forums can make a difference. This is not big stuff. It's just persistent information, taking the time to meet, knowing how they're voting, tell them what's important to you. And so I think that that progressive community needs to be doing, and all of us need to be making a commitment to knowing how our representatives vote, to being clear in our message that we are opposed to these tax cuts for more millionaires and billionaires and that we are opposed to cutting foster care children and funding for foster care children and health care and that we want health care. If you do that systematically, you can begin to change those votes. Congress people respond to the people they hear from. And if they don't hear from you in a systematic way, then they're not going to respond in any different way than, than, than they have been. So I just think that the example of turning that one vote around is the example that we need to follow in a consistent, persistent way. So I do hope you'll just do your homework, we've got the homework, and that you will decide that you're gonna make sure that everybody knows that you're against tax cuts, everybody knows you're against the budget cuts, and everybody knows you're for health care for children, and you will see a very different delegation from Minnesota. If you stay with it, and if they don't hear you, then you let them hear you in November if they don't do the right thing for children. It's about children, and it's about justice. But each of you as an individual, with those emails, those letters, those visits, that makes a difference. So determine to make that difference. Make a change. People need to work with legislators of all political persuasions, as you've just said, to create a critical mass. What are some illustrations of programs where people have found common ground 
and improvements were made. Well, I want to just affirm the fact that we have made extraordinary progress in our nation. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to have folks say that, you know, we declared a war in poverty and poverty won, but millions of people got lifted out of poverty. Millions of children are in college and leading in our communities who got a Head Start. When we started with Head Start, and that's one of those common ground things, and they're trying to freeze Head Start and cut it back and undermine its quality. But millions of children got a Head Start, and they are leaders today. Millions of children got health care. We have a framework of laws, 30, 40 major new laws, including the right of children who are disabled to go to school. That didn't exist 30 years ago. But there has been enormous progress, and we have had you know, a huge number of people to escape poverty because of the efforts of people who rallied around specific things. We didn't have a child care block grant 25 years ago. So that you just have to understand that there's a huge set of laws that would not have been in place unless people came together in coalition to try to make it happen. We have an earned income tax credit that has been passed. We have a child tax credit, which are very important. Everybody needs to know that there are voluntary free tax clinics to let them know low-income working people they can get tax refunds and to lift themselves out of poverty. And there are many here in Minnesota and all over the country. We are running tax clinics everywhere. A lot of progress has been made. The civil rights movement is an evidence of progress and the civil rights laws, but I will just tell you that all of them are at risk now, but we have got to stand up and say, no, these things work, and if you get our little booklet um, on, on an action agenda, we'll show you all the progress that we have made. We show you the choices that we can make because we could lift every child out of poverty tomorrow for just a very small percentage of that tax cut for the top 1% of Americans or for just a very small percentage of some of the military spending. So we have choices, and you need to know those choices, and you can do what was done in the civil rights movement and we need a new civil rights movement but it's about children it's about the poor it's about finishing the job that dr king did and put the economic and the social underpinnings and so building a movement for children will be building a movement for the future but you've got good successes to build on and so i hope you will do that i hope you'll look at our do your homework in our little mini green book i hope you'll look at our website and see the choices see the successes and then see how we're going to move ahead and finish the job Thank you, Marion Wright Edelman. Thank you for that uh, marvelous response to Ms. Edelman's remarks.